What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The opinions expressed on this webmasterradio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers. And do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning and welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. I'm Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica. We're glad to have you and please be seated. We have a great show for you today. Um, we have two um, show alumni. We're, we're going to start off with Stan Stahl from Citadel Information Group. I was going to talk about um, some of the quite alarming events that have happened in the world of cybersecurity lately. And then we have Baron Soka, who's going to be talking about his book about in the, in the second half about his book on the next digital decade. But um, so we have a good show. We'll be covering some other um, issues at the end of the show. Um, but um, why don't we start off with um, the, the recent news du jour about Facebook and the, the threat made by Anonymous? Brasco? Attention, citizens of the world, we are anonymous. We wish to get your attention, hoping you heed the warnings as follows. Your medium of communication you all so dearly adore will be destroyed. If you're a willing activist or a guy who just wants to protect the freedom of information then join the cause and kill Facebook for the sake of your own privacy. Facebook has been selling information to government agencies so and giving with that, anonymous access has made a to threat information to bring security. Facebook down on November 5th, which is Guy Fox Day, um, which has you know, been now been highly um, publicized in the movie um, V is for what is the V for? <laughs> Any event. Um, but here to talk about the latest threat and some of the other events that have been going on. Um, we have Stan Saul, and Stan is a, a, a man extraordinaire when it comes to cybersecurity. He's actually um, worked with the, the White House on some of their issues 
And um, Stan, it's great to have you back. Super, Bennett. It's a pleasure to be back with you and uh, talking about such an important subject as, as uh, cybersecurity. And just to, you know, to refresh people's memory, I mean, Stan's actually, his career stems from securing teleconferencing at the White House database and, and as well as um, working with their nuclear weapons arsenal. So you're, you're quite a man to talk to at, a, at what seems to be a critical time. And I can't recall a time when there's been as much happening in the world of cybersecurity and cyber threats and attacks as there has been this year. It just seems to be this year seems to be the year of the hacker. Certainly it does, Bennett. Uh, this is one of those things that we've been watching since the Internet became real in the, in the 1990s, of course. And uh, always before, there's been, a, you know, there's this undercurrent of, of cybercrime, intellectual property theft, things like that. But uh, I think starting last year, we began to see a lot more cybercrime, cyber fraud, those kinds of activities down at uh, small, medium-sized businesses, what are classically called middle market companies. Um, and then this year with the explosion of Anonymous and LulzSec and organizations like that, where it's not just crime. Well, if you, in fact, even if you go back further, I mean, there's like three generations of this stuff. First, the, the, the kids who are looking for trophies for their walls, uh, viruses and, and things that caused a lot of, can, you, know, you know, set people back and all, but really weren't, didn't do a lot of, of, of theft. And now the second phase is the, the crime and all that we began to see so much more of last year. I mean, it's been going on even longer. And then this year with the political attacks, Anonymous and, and, uh, and LulzSec. And what's, what's interesting, and on top of you know, the, the clip we just played, um, McAfee has just released a report called Operation Shady Rat. Are you yes. familiar with that? Oh, yes. What is its findings? Yeah. Well, it, it, this is, again, one of those things that, um, as, as the Internet has become more ubiquitous, uh, particularly state governments uh, playing a role in, okay, what can they do to help their people, if you will. Uh, and it looks like, like uh, Shady Rat was something uh, from the Chinese uh, at least has their blessing, if if not their uh, their actual support, and it, it it appears that based based on on the McAfee findings, that uh, several several well known organizations um, have been uh, attacked by organizations in China, and uh, whether it's like in the case of the uh, International Olympic Committee and some of the uh, other things leading up to the the uh, Olympics in China. Uh, a way to kind of spy on what other people were doing, uh, or in the case of, of other attacks, like even the Google attack well over a year ago, uh, where it looks like uh, there the Chinese were looking for ways to identify people inside of China who they would consider uh, a danger to the to the state, um, and uh, moving forward, even the the theft of intellectual property in, in massive proportions where I think what's, what's interesting about uh, the McAfee situation, the McAfee finding, is that it brought to light stuff that's been going on for, for several years um, and uh, you know, shown the light of day on it, if you will. Well, I mean, in terms of uh, you know, who has been penetrated this year alone, I mean, we've heard stories over the years about other actors, but this year alone, it, it's, a, it's a who's who, really, of... Um, in 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 business and government and um, 
You know, so for example, among businesses that have been penetrated, you have ExxonMobil, um, ConocoPhillips, TripAdvisor, WordPress, Nintendo, um, Sony multiple times, Citicorp, um, Google, um, Booz Allen, NASDAQ, Koch Industries, Lockheed Martin, and um, let's not forget the New York Yankees. Um, right. That's just the business side. And then we move over to on the governmental side. And there you have governments, you know, a whole host of international um, entities, you know, from the, including the IMF as well as governments from Brazil to Canada um, to the UK, France, South Korea. And then you move back to the States and you have groups such as Oak Ridge National Labs, which does weapon, weapons research. Um, you have NASA, you have the CIA um, and the Pentagon and the United States Senate uh, website all have been attacked. And in fact, the CIA website was recently brought down. And, and so those are the last people you would think to be considered vulnerable in this day and age. And so it, it's somewhat alarming. You know, I, I think back to 9-11 when, as awful as it was, and one of the more disturbing things for me personally was um, seeing that the Pentagon was hit. You know, having lived in Washington for so long, and you know, that was something you always thought of as impenetrable. Mm-hmm. And the the thought that that could be was vulnerable you know, kind of gave gave myself a, a sense of vulnerability that I didn't have before um, live as an American. And so, you know, this is somewhat unnerving. I think when you see these these institutions who you think should be safe um, being victimized as they have been this year. Oh, completely agree with you, Bennett. Uh, what what we're seeing is is unprecedented. Um, and first, I want, to, I want to make a distinction. Like, if you look at the CIA website, one hopes, at least, that the confidential classified information, whether CIA, NSA, the Department of Defense, and so on, those uh, are running on, on different networks. At least they, they used to be. I, I, I can't speak directly to that anymore, but they used to be running on completely separate networks. They should be. And a vulnerability on a website of the CIA's one hopes doesn't translate. That is much different. Yeah, it's not like I can type in backslash secret stuff. <laughs> What's that? It's not like I can type type in backslash secret stuff and get everything. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we did have the WikiLeaks. I mean, the the, the big challenge there uh, are people who do have the the clearances, the access to information, who, for whatever reasons, uh, you know, this, this isn't a place to discuss politics, but the realities of of of, of uh, Web security or, or insecurity, but uh, you've always got the problem with people on the inside, right? I mean that's different. And although you know, why was something like that that information kept on a a, a computer that had a a disk drive? Yeah, <laughs> it right. remains to be seen. Yeah. But um, and you know, regardless of the politics, you know, I actually have spoken with people in the State Department who have told me that some of the stuff that has been leaked has caused you know. The cost people lives. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. Know, yeah, sources certainly. have been exposed and 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 they've paid the price. Mm-hmm. So um, you know it's it's definitely had a big impact on on our right. government. Yeah, but I think also if if you look for example at uh, one of the sites I use a lot for uh, um, general information about cybersecurity is Brian Krebs's website KrebsOnSecurity.com and just yesterday and today, uh, yesterday's posting by Brian. 22 reasons to patch your Windows PC. Yesterday was Patch Tuesday, of course, for for Microsoft products. Uh, 22 uh, security flaws in Windows operating system. Today's 
headline is updates for Adobe Flash, Shockwave, and AIR, three more programs that now have patches available for the programs that are running on our computers that have vulnerabilities in them. And right away, I mean, this, this speaks to the real challenge we have trying to protect information when the software that we are using to, to run our systems, I mean, whether it's Windows, it's Microsoft Office, it's Adobe, Adobe Flash, Reader, all of those kinds of products have vulnerabilities in them that are uh, exploited by the cyber criminals or the state governments or whoever's doing it as a means of gaining access into uh, in, in, into the computers of you know of our businesses and and uh, uh, individuals that matches up. I mean, it, it, there's an, another side to this. Uh, there's been a whole host of online bank fraud, electronic banking fraud. Uh, right, that's been ongoing. That's been ongoing for well over now, probably close to two years. Uh, we've been seeing these kind of attacks, and those happen by the cyber criminals doing two things. One, they typically will induce a user to click on a link in an email, um, open up an attachment in an email, uh, even visit a website, all of which have vulnerabilities that the hackers have been able to exploit. And Mm -hmm. so gaining access into computers is often a a two-step process. One, you induce a human being to do something they shouldn't, that is, click on a link, open an attachment or something. And two, once they've done that, the, that act installs software on their computer, taking advantage of these vulnerabilities, and that installed software then gives the cyber criminal access and control over the computer that has been, uh, that, that's been attacked. Now, so let, let's to fix this, we've got to kind of, if you will, handle two simultaneous challenges. One is you know, the vul- identifying vulnerabilities in software sooner and getting them patched before the, the cyber criminals can take action there. And two, really doing a significantly better job at training our people to be sensitive to what they're doing when they're on the web. Well, I think I saw one headline, the idea that um, you know, security by, de- by, by design – that you know, it isn't something you think of after the fact. That's true. Yeah, I mean, and this goes back when when you introduced me. You talked about some of the work I'd done at the White House and Cheyenne Mountain and places like that. One of the things we learned very early in the security game—I'm talking early 1980s, even 30 years ago—is that you can't build a system and then say, "Okay, now let's put security on it." <laughs> you, you know, it's not like you build a house and now you look around and right. where your doors and windows. We'll put locks on them. Software is far more porous than that, if you will. You've got to be thinking about security, whether it's a program you're writing or a, uh, a network that you're building, any of those things. You've got to be thinking about security from the very beginning. Now, uh, we've lumped together you know, several different stories, you know, in essence, that, but they're also reported as one um, and as one big threat. You know, first we 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 we've played the anonymous um, threat, and and so that is uh, cyber vigilanteism out that exists yeah. out there. And then we've also talked about um, the uh, the op- operation rat, and um, you know that's that's state sponsored mm-hmm. cyber attacks, and um, and then of course we we just talked now about 
you know, kind of just regular criminal um, fraudulent um, uh, attacks. And are, are they all really the same threat or do they need to be kind of parsed out? And do, does each one have a different consequence and a different response? Good question. And it's, it's twofold. I think in, in, in one way, it's all the same thing. That is to say, uh, whether it's anonymous, whether it's state-sponsored, whether it's cyber criminals in Eastern Europe uh, or anywhere else in the world, for that matter, uh, their method of gaining access into the computers of their victims is very much the same. Find and exploit Find a vulnerability that you can exploit. Induce a user to give you the opportunity to exploit that vulnerability. That's the the one side of things. How do we get access into uh, an organization's computer systems? Whether that organization, you know, happens to be an escrow company in Southern California or it happens to be the U.S. Senate. It's all somewhat analogous in, in those things. The other kinds of attacks, these things like the initial attack on Sony, uh, the attacks on, on PayPal by Anonymous after the, uh, the WikiLeaks. Uh, right. Those were distributed denial-of-service attacks. Those, those occur, those take place in a different way. In those cases, the cyber criminals using computers that they have taken over through that first method that I talked about control all those computers and basically say to all of them, go start pinging whatever network, whatever website you want to bring down. And if you can get 100,000 computers, let's say, all going to the White House all at the same time saying, show me you know, this information, you're going to overwhelm the servers at the White House. At least that's the intent. Um, it failed the last time the Chinese tried that at the White House several years ago. Uh, there may be attacks like that going on today that are classified we would never see. But those are the kinds of attacks, those distributed denial-of-service attacks, that did bring down PayPal temporarily and the WikiLeaks thing that brought down PlayStation initially and, and so on. So there's those two different forms of, of attack. And I guess I would add to that one more, which is there's one of the things the cyber criminals are doing is uh, they are sending spidering agents out onto the Internet, crawling over the Internet, looking at websites, looking for vulnerabilities on the websites where the cyber criminals can then inject their own code so that anybody who goes to those websites is now in danger of being infected, of having their computers infected. There again, this piece of the solution to that is keep your systems patched at all times. And... Do you recommend that people have the automatic updates or given some of the problems that occur in some of them, um, they, they do it as a, on an ad hoc basis? Uh, let's see. The Windows automatic updates, certainly I would turn on uh, and, okay. and let, those, let those run. Um, I've lost two computers that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you've got to, and, and Microsoft's done the right thing here in setting that as the default. I mean, the, the default for Windows is to download and install updates when, when they're available. Uh, for other programs, it, 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 in some sense, it depends on how technical the, the person is. Uh, if they're not technical at all, set the things for auto-update and go ahead and just do that. Uh, if they're at all technical uh, and don't mind you know, opening up programs, checking for updates, and so on, uh, they, they ought to do that on a, on a very regular basis, stay on top of where there are updates available and go get them. One of the things our company does uh, on a weekly basis is publish a uh, 
we call it the weekend vulnerability and patch report. Right, and uh, it's not all programs in need of updates, but it's the ones that are most commonly found in small offices, uh, home computers, things like that. And uh, you can subscribe to that uh, on, on our website. Which is? Uh, funny you should ask. www.citadel-information.com Now, um, this actually is it's serious business for a number of reasons. One, you know, some of the items that we're talking about are, do involve national security, but um, could, this also could have a major impact in, in undermining confidence and in, in use of the web. Mm-hmm. And In some respects, um, you know, I was reading a lot of you know, what the fallout was from the Standard & Poor's downgrade, but that in some respects it, this could have a, a more lasting impact on the Internet economy than anything Standard & Poor's has done. That's, I think you're absolutely right there. In fact, I wonder, uh, the, the thought has crossed my mind, let me put it that way, uh, to what extent, given the kind of an overriding pessimism right now in the, in the stock market, right. uh, with the S&P downgrade as just one example, to what extent is... Uh, or is all the the internet uh, hacking that we are seeing just contributing to that pessimism, to that malaise? And and, and more importantly, is it you know is it discouraging people from using the web or you know, minim, minimizing the extent of their involvement in the web? Mm-hmm. And so, in that sense, is it, is it creating a ceiling on the economic growth of the web? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a, a legitimate question to ask. I, you know, I, I've not seen surveys uh, asking and answering those questions, so it's it's hard to kind of get a anything more than a, just a gut feel for that. Uh, on the one hand, frankly, I'm hopeful that it gets people to slow down a little bit and at least ask the questions about security and take some of the steps that we all have to take to improve the way we you know securely interact with the web. Uh, I mean, I continue to see studies that long after patches are available, exploits are out there that take advantage of those vulnerabilities uh, that the patches are there to fix. People aren't patching their systems. Uh, There was a study recently I saw that some large percentage, I don't remember what the number was, but some unusually large percentage of computers aren't even protected with basic antivirus software. to the extent that those statistics represent the way the man on the street, if you will, thinks about the Internet, uh, slowing down would not be a bad thing right now. You know, let's step back, oh. take a look, what are we doing that is putting us in this position, and what do we all have to do to get our computers a little bit more secure, get our people a little bit better trained so that they don't fall victims to these kinds of problems. Now, granted, this was um, roughly 2001, but I do recall magazines and um, break after this question, one taking a survey of um, the chief information officers of a lot of the Internet companies and asked the, what their passwords were and um, username and passwords. A lot of them, um, a lot of the you know, CIOs or the, the tech directors um, use passwords that, that were given to them when they, when they first joined, you know, new user. Or mm-hmm. password, <laughs> and yes, um, yes. and yeah. I, granted, I, I have to assume that that's not the case today. But I, I bet you there is some prevalence of it still. Although, um, and that's what we're seeing. 
Um, for example, in on the regulatory front, the Federal Trade Commission actually sanctioned um, Twitter um, for security violations. And one thing that it's requiring is that they, they take steps to require people to update their passwords and to um, prevent um, block attacks after one or two you know, wrong password attempts. Mm-hmm. And um, so you're starting to see a, a regulatory response to this. But I'm going to talk about what this means in terms of privacy after these messages. Go for it. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brad Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. MySEOTool.com is your all-in-one SEO management resource. MySEOTool.com makes it easy to optimize and oversee all of your SEO efforts. Line-by-line detailed reports help you identify any problems and show you how to fix them. MySEOTool.com is completely automated. Once you use it, you will see a rise in your search rankings and traffic. Try MySEOTool risk-free today. Go to MySEOTool.com. MySEOTool.com. On the road. On the boat, working out, or up in the air. Now you can listen to WebmasterRadio.fm on the go from anywhere. Look for WebmasterRadio.fm on TuneIn. Available for download on your iPhone, iPad, BlackBerry, Android, Palm, Samsung, and Windows Phone. As well as Google TV, Yahoo TV, and Roku. Tune in to WebmasterRadio.fm on the go from anywhere by downloading TuneIn right now. WebmasterRadio.fm. We really are everywhere. Drop into the Webmaster chat room. WebmasterRadio.fm. Clothing is optional. WebmasterRadio.fm. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back talking to Stan Stahl from Citadel Information Group about cybersecurity. And right now on Capitol Hill, well, actually, once they get back from their recess, there's a, a bunch of different privacy proposals that are pending, as well as a debate over Google's relationship with the National Security Administration and what information is being shared there. And the, the overriding discussion there is what information um, should be allowed to be collected from consumers and then how can it be used? But in, in light of these events, Stan, shouldn't we also be considering how secure is this information to begin with? And should that, should that inform the debate? 
Yeah, I think absolutely it should. Uh, in fact, not should, it needs to inform the debate. Give you one example. There's a bill in the, I'll leave the House of Representatives, uh, dealing with the Internet service providers have to, uh, right now, I believe the standard of days, I'm not sure if that's built into regulation and law or just an agreed-upon standard, but the push is to get the law extended to require all Internet service providers to keep track of the activities of all of their customers for a year and have that information available to law enforcement um, with the idea that that would um, then be something to be used against child um, uh, predators and and people who uh, who traffic in child pornography and well you can say okay those are good ideals we ought to you know we ought to do what we can about child pornography and, and things of, of that uh, of that ilk you also do definitely have to look at with a year's worth of data all available to the cyber criminals who want to hack into ISPs and exactly. now that information you know, just becomes available to, let's say, one's political enemies. Uh, that information doesn't have to deal exclusively with child porn, but let's suppose, you know, and somebody, a district attorney in a well-known state, uses the Internet to uh, access uh, a website uh, where he might uh, find prostitutes. Uh, it's not unheard of in this country. Uh, that information now becomes available, perhaps, to, uh, to, to one's enemies. It should it? Uh, we're not having that discussion in this country, and I think we definitely need to. Uh, that that's just one of those places that, uh, as I say, you know, we we need to do a much deeper job of of dialogue. And I, I think what is what's happened, and, and you know, in talking with the FTC, one thing is the the whole debate over privacy has become more complex because the number of actors involved and the, the way information is collected and used just keeps changing exponentially. And you know, just when they think they've got their arms around it, it's a whole new um, regime involved. And so it's it's a very complex debate. And then you throw away onto this layer that once you figure out, okay, what's, what's proper to collect and what isn't, how secure is it? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Oh, and I think when you look at the on the government side, the government's between a rock and a hard place on on this stuff. Because on the on the one hand, uh, you know we, we need organizations like the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the FFIEC, who regulates banks uh, and all, to I think do a much better job of laying down standards, uh, if not actual regulations, at least strong recommendations, like the FFIEC just did. With with online bank fraud, uh, to to really help all of us, you know, kind of better understand what it is that we have to do. Uh, at the same time, we've been involved in a situation with a client of ours where the FTC, frankly, we think overreached in terms of of our our client did not have a breach and it did not involve our client's customers, and yet the FTC uh, wanted to hold our custom our our client. Uh, guilty of non-competitive uh, practices uh, because ostensibly from the FTC's position, this non-breach put customer information that was supposed to be kept private, uh, put it at risk. In fact, it did not. Uh, helping the FTC understand that was not an easy prospect. We did but it, the FTC, but it the, was a I've been on panels with them, and, and they, they're very firm in their position. Um, it's been a mantra for the last three years or so or more that the fact that you have a data breach 
doesn't mean you're going to have liability to the FTC. But the fact that you don't doesn't mean you won't either. Mm-hmm. And that you still can be liable, even in the absence of a breach, if you're not having appropriate security, given the nature of the information you collect. Yeah. And um, I think that's probably what, what, that's what you ran into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. And, and here again, I mean, there, there's two types of information we're looking at in, in the case of like the FTC. Um, when we're looking at a, a business, an organization of any kind, and we're looking at the information they have about their customers, their clients, citizens, if you will, um, there's a role for the Federal Trade Commission to play in saying, okay, you've got this information about other people, you have to protect it. The second piece, though, that's also, I think, in today's world, even more relevant, is the company's own information. It's intellectual property, which is being stolen. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the McAfee situation, the rat uh, uh, situ, you know, thing. Uh, intellectual property, online bank fraud is, uh, you know, at epidemic proportions. These are things that, you know, it's not, oh, you've lost somebody else's information, the FTC is going to come and slap your wrists or more. This is, you've lost your own information, you've just lost your competitive advantage. You just right. lost a half a million dollars to online bank thieves. Where are you going to go get that half a million dollars? That's true. Very now, different uh, situation. Stan, this is a, just a fascinating topic, and we could talk about this for a long time. We have, we have another guest that's going to be coming on board shortly. But I, I want to thank you for joining us. And um, why don't you tell us where people can reach you, and, and do you have any appearances coming up that you want to, you want to plug? Okay, well, yeah, certainly. Thank you, Bennett. Uh, our website is uh, www.citadel, C-I-T-A-D-E-L, dash or hyphen, information, uh, dot com. I'm Stan at citadel-information.com. Uh, my my uh, cell phone number is 323-428-0441. Uh, we are, uh, I'm also president of, of the uh, L.A. chapter of the Information Systems Security Association. Our next uh, lunch meeting is uh, a week from today, in fact, next Wednesday. Uh, and you can get information on that at uh, www.issa-la.org. Um, and uh, that's, uh, you know, that, that's the, the good starting point for uh, jumping into this field. Great, Stan. It's always a pleasure having you. Thanks for coming back to the show and look forward to talking to you again. Super. Thank you, Bennett. I'm always happy to uh, talk about this subject, as you know. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, we've got, before we go, our next guest, we've got a couple of updates for you. And um, one kind of follows up on what we were just talking about with Stan. And um, many of you may have, may have heard of a guy named Sanford Wallace. He is a self-proclaimed spam king. And um, he's had uh, multi-million dollar judgments um, against him for spamming Facebook. Well, he's just been indicted um, on um, for sending more 27 million spam messages to Facebook users. Um, the Justice Department has just uh, announced that this week. And he faces uh, many years in prison. Now, should this go forward, um, Monday he actually turned himself into the FBI. So um, this um, this story is an evolving one. Um, he's forty years old, and uh, he's um, he's always been, he's had a number of judgments against him, multi million dollar judgments against him for spam and fraud, and um, he's declared bankruptcy. But you know, bankruptcy courts don't always discharge your um, 
intentional torts. So um, that's going to be uh, something we're going to be following. But related to that, next week we'll be having on the show um, Timothy Walton, who is one of the leading, or if not the leading, anti-spam lawyer um, in the nation, if not, or at least on the West Coast. And if you look at any of the leading decisions that have been decided in, in interpreting the California spam law and in the um, the Can Spam Act, the person taking the you know, the position of the um, the anti spam um, advocates is usually represented by Timothy. So um, he's he's a bright guy, and we're, we're glad he's going to be joining us next week, um, to, which I'm sure will spark a, a number, a great debate among um, among those listening and those participating in the chat room. So I just wanted to flag that for you. Next week we will be having Timothy Walton. And one of the things I just wanted to flag, you know, we talk about um, the impact of some of these cybersecurity issues and, and the fact that it could have a dampening effect on the growth of the Internet. And um, we, t- we talked about it in relation to the Standard & Poor's announcement. Now, you know, one thing that it, the Standard & Poor's decision that was recently criticized by um, Nomura's Richard Koo and um, in doing so, Ku cited the example of Japan's recovery from their, their lost decade, in which they more or less had stagflation for a decade. And it, it, he's, he noted that the, the administrations that tried to impose austerity um, during the recession actually ended up worsening matters, whereas the ones that actually tried to be... Um, be stimulative, not only did they um, create um, some some growth, but they also reduced the fiscal um, crisis as well. And we're seeing that also here in the state level. The states that have actually cut spending have, have seen job losses, while the states that have increased spending have actually seen job growth. And, um, and the other historical analogy has been with the New Deal. You know, the only time... You know, Roosevelt had negative growth was when he tried to cut back after the initial launch of the New Deal programs. So I think what we're seeing in Washington and now with Standard of Poor's is something that has its its own logic, but it's not based in fact or reality or economic reason. And so if history is, is has a course of how we can get out of this mess and somehow – um, standard poor's, which is being is led by an English major, not an econ- economist, somehow seems to think differently. But um, we're going to be joined in a minute by Baron Zoka. He is head of Tech Freedom. Um, he's been a, a very active person on the internet issues and um, speak frequently speaking before Congress and other bodies. And um, Baron and Tech Freedom have a book out on the next digital decade. And Baron, are you with us? Baron is added to the call. Baron, yes, thank you for joining us. Of course, and um, so Baron, um, you've been you recently joined Tech Freedom, I think, just before your last time on the show. And why don't you tell the uh, listeners a little bit about what Tech Freedom is? Sure. Well, as they might recall uh, from the last time I was on, I previously ran the Center for Internet Freedom at the Progress and Freedom Foundation, and in that uh, capacity worked uh, from a free market perspective on a wide range of internet policy issues, including privacy and competition and uh, intermediary deputization for 
several years. And uh, PFF closed last uh, October, and we launched Tech Freedom to continue that work. Uh, and uh, so I've been largely focused on uh, privacy uh, across the board, also continuing the work I've done on kids' privacy and, and COPPA and things that the FTC is looking at, but also worked with uh, a number of other adjunct fellows like Larry Downs and Jeff Manny on a range of things that involve the FCC as well as the FTC, uh, ranging from traditional communications issues to current Internet policy debates. Now, uh, we, I don't know if you heard us earlier, we were talking about you know, just the the ongoing you know, concerns of, of cyber attacks and cyber breaches. And one of the things we raised was the, the recent um, discussions about Google's relationship with NSA. And I don't know if that's something you've weighed in on at all or not. Well, I've certainly heard people ask questions about that. I think it's a fair thing to ask questions about, but I have sensed a, a bit of the uh, typical uh, hysteria about Google. I mean, it, it's, a again, a thing anybody should ask questions about, but if it really is the case that that relationship is simply a matter of Google getting help protecting its systems from Chinese attacks and thus protecting dissidents and, and for example, U.S. government officials who might use Google services, uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. So uh, I think the answer here is a little bit more transparency about the relationships that not just Google but other companies have with uh, with the cybersecurity experts in the U.S. government. But uh, as somebody who's generally pretty critical of the government, I think defense is their constitutional role, and that would include cyber defense, and, and that might mean that, helping to secure those assets. That's a good point because if um, you may recall the uh, the recent breach of the Gmail. Uh, actually exposed uh, the Gmail accounts of of a number of uh, people in the administration and in Congress, and so there definitely is a, an important role in trying to secure that. Um, now, you've also, um, I understand, you've been involved on the issue of the question of data retention, which you know, Stan was talking about. You know, the the, the child pornography uh, bill that, that's designed to require ISPs to retain data for a year or as much as two years. And it, what is your position on that? Well, we did a coalition letter, Tech Freedom, along with uh, our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the Digital Liberty Project over at Americans for Tax Reform, laying out the reasons that we thought that uh, free marketeers and libertarians and conservatives and people who, are, who generally believe in constitutionally limited government should be wary of such uh, measures, even though they're generally sold as ways to assist law enforcement. And to, to I would refer your listeners to that coalition letter, which that they could find on the Tech Freedom website. But in a nutshell, there's really no evidence that that sort of a data retention mandate actually helps to stop uh, the abuse of children and helps uh, law enforcement catch child predators. In fact, the Europeans, I think it was Germany, just conducted a large study on this and found that really the laws were, were not effective. Uh, there are already companies that are voluntarily retaining some of that data, and I, I really um, don't have a problem with companies choosing to do that, but I, I do have a problem with the government drawing a line in the sand and saying, you have to retain all this this log data about who's accessing the internet. And that concern is hugely magnified when it's not just that the government is requiring that the data be retained, but the standard for accessing the data is essentially meaningless. So instead of getting a uh, constitutionally required 
uh, warrant, such as the Fourth Amendment, in my view, requires. Instead, the bill that uh, you referred to would, it's H.R. 1981, for anyone who's interested, would allow law enforcement, U.S. Marshals in particular, to simply use an administrative subpoena process, which basically means that they assert that there's some need, and they get the subpoena, and they can go and and retain uh, or get access to all this retained data without any real scrutiny by a court. So even if you did think that this sort of retention was appropriate, there's really no justification, in, in my view, for dispensing with the Fourth Amendment's requirement that courts get involved and that law enforcement, to get access to data, has to show that it has probable cause and, and meet all the other requirements of a warrant. And that's actually something that's being debated in Congress now. I think some of the um, the, the major internet companies are, are want um, that to be clar- stat- clarified statutorily. Yeah, there was a very dramatic markup on this. Markups, you know, are generally not particularly interesting, but the one that <laughs> occurred uh, a week ago, Friday, was the most interesting one I've ever seen. And it consisted of um, uh, most of the Democrats, not all of them, most of them, uh, and uh, two uh, very courageous Republicans, uh, Representative Sensenbrenner, uh, who's been a longtime champion of civil liberties and a critic of the Bush administration on things like the Patriot Act, uh, and um, two other Republican congressmen who were working against the chairman, uh, Lamar Smith, to try to, if not remove this data retention mandate, then to at least remove that administrative subpoena position. And it was a funny thing because, you know, we... Um, we're strictly nonpartisan. We we find common cause with people on both sides of the aisle, but it's not every day that you hear somebody like uh, Congressman John Conyers saying that he was with Tech Freedom and the Competitive Enterprise Institute and Grover Norquist over at Americans for Tax Reform, and that he was taking you know our side of the issue. And it was I have to say it was it was fun to watch some of the Republicans on the committee squirm a bit uh, as we really pointed out to them that you know this is. This is a matter of uh, constitutional liberty and, and something that's not to be taken lightly. It's interesting because you mentioned the uh, Conyers. We actually had um, Dana Rohrbacher on our show a few weeks back, um, and when he, was, he was talking about his opposition to the patent reform legislation because of the bank bailout provision. And, uh, you know, and there was a case where he, was, he once again was aligned with Conyers. Um, you know, uh, definitely an unlikely pair, but not always the case. Well, being a libertarian, as I often say, means that you – you're going to disagree with someone half the time and agree with them the other half of the time. And the question is whether you accentuate the positive or focus on your disagreements. <laughs> so I always try to, to play to people's uh, sympathies for our, for our liberties. And, and I think uh, in the big picture that this is a really interesting moment in American politics where you really are starting to see a lot of the traditional political um, ossification into the red team, blue team break down. And you see people like... Uh, Ron Paul uh, joining hands with Barney Frank on things like uh, preventing more bank bailouts. And similarly on our issues, on technology policy, uh, there are lots of times when you find champions of civil liberties and people who are wary of government intervention on both sides of the aisle. But it did seem that there's um, there's less liberty to do so, I think, today in Capitol Hill than there was 10 years ago. You know, I think there's a price to be paid for reaching across the aisle now, than more so than there was before. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, it's that's an interesting question as to whether American political parties have gotten more disciplined. But um, but certainly, you're seeing that the Tea Party has, for, just for example, has has really uh, stood up to the party leadership 
and really force them to to do a turnaround. I mean, it's it's pretty dramatic a uh, transition if you step back and look at where we are in American politics today. Uh, it seems to me there's there's a lot there's a much more healthy libertarian streak, and I'm I'm just really hoping that that will will see that bleed over into technology policy, and people will be similarly skeptical and cautious about getting the government involved in things, even when it's for a cause that sounds great, like net neutrality or, or privacy, all these words that end in why, that uh, <laughs> it's, very, it's very difficult to explain to a layperson why it's not just sunshine and rainbows, but in fact ultimately means putting the government uh, in the driver's seat and having the meddle with how technology is designed and how it's funded and and the it's just what, what what we really think of as the precautionary principle. So that's what governs a lot of areas of regulation when it comes to things like nuclear safety, for example. Where right. the, uh, the the consequences of, of a disaster are are horrific, and so the regulators really uh, will will basically spare no cost to avoid that uh, sort of an outcome. And that's you know that sounds great, but life is full of trade-offs. And when you apply that that approach to areas of, of, of policymaking that are not like nuclear safety, um, or, or even if you apply that too far in the case of nuclear safety, you know, you, you end up doing things that in fact, you know, can make you less safe or that uh, burden other values. And just on, on the highest level across all the issues I work on, I would say that it's very hard for people to keep in mind that the, those trade-offs when it comes to the internet, because it's like what Arthur C. Clarke once said, that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and 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 he was certainly right in terms of how we perceive technology but the problem is that if if you think about technology that way if you just imagine that the iPad for example magically just develops and it was you know it was born to happen and it couldn't have been otherwise you can become very cavalier about the costs of meddling in the marketplace and lose sight of what it means if, for example, in the name of, of antitrust uh, scrutiny and preventing a company like today it's Google, could be someone else later, uh, any one of those companies from becoming too big, if you start saying that, that that sort of a company can't buy startups, for example, you have totally changed and in many cases wrecked the business plans of lots of startups out there who, whose business plan is to get somewhat big and then sell to a bigger player. And that's the kind of thing that is very difficult for people in Washington to uh, really see and keep in mind when they're making policy. So our job, in, in large part, is to, again and again, tell them to, uh, you know, think about the future and what they're missing. Yeah, you know, I'm tempted to ask you what you have against sunshine and rainbows, but I wanted to ask you about your book, and um, I, 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 I like the fact that you, you have a chapter that addresses the issue of internet exceptionalism. You know, that always seems to be a problem, I think, in policy debates is that this notion that the Internet is somehow different, which which it is and it isn't, which, of course, it isn't very, very um, enlightening. But um, you know, what is your take on Internet exceptionalism? And, 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 and this is alive and well today. Well, first, thanks for mentioning the book. It's called The Next Digital Decade, Essays on the Future of the Internet. And it was, it was the first project we did at Tech Freedom. And it's a collection of uh, 31 essays from a wide range of thinkers on technology policy across the philosophical spectrum. It's not uh, some of them have been guests on the show. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they have. It's a great list of people: uh, Tim Wu, uh, Yokai Benkler, 
uh, my colleague Larry Downs, uh, Jonathan Zittrain, and so on. And, and the theme really is centered around that topic of Internet exceptionalism. And it's something that your listeners really, if they only read a few essays in the book, they should read those because you really can't understand Internet policy without understanding that it, it comes from this, this historical moment in the late 1990s when uh, people argued that the Internet really was different and unique and that it couldn't be regulated by government. And then people like Tim Wu came back and said, well, yes, it can. Uh, and now the debates, well, how should it be regulated? So that's really what the book uh, develops in, in the course of those 10 uh, topics, 10 key questions about the future of the Internet. Well, it's also – it's not just that it shouldn't be regulated by government, but that somehow it should be separate from commerce and um, that it shouldn't be polluted by commerce. And you know, I think – I sometimes equate um, some of the early Internet exceptionalism with Internet utopianism. Yeah, it's a, ripe, it's a ripe topic. There's a lot there, and you're certainly right that uh, a lot of people who thought they were saying the same things in the, in the 90s actually meant very different things. And on the highest level, I think what we saw is that there was this, this internet exceptionalist uh, framework of this umbrella movement, but it started to splinter. And a lot of the people who really meant, oh, no, no, we don't want the internet to be, as you say, separate and different from commerce, have, have really parted ways with people who really just thought that the internet was a liberating thing and the government should stay out. And so a lot of the debates we're seeing today are really debates between and among people who were on the same side back in the 90s. And we, so Baron, as I say, we try to develop that theme across the, the book. We only have a few minutes left. So what, what's next for you? Where can people see you next? Well, first, the book is available for free. I just have to mention uh, the full PDF is at nextdigitaldecade.com. You can also buy a hardcover of the book and the Kindle uh, version uh, is available for, I think, 99 cents, which is the lowest we could price it, because we really just want people to read the book. And it's also, uh, if it's not out yet, it will be soon in the Google Book and, and uh, Apple iPad stores. So please check that out. But generally, I blog on the technology liberation front, which is techliberation.com. It's a group blog for free market, cyber libertarian thinkers at a number of policy organizations. And we write on a wide range of topics, but that's the best place to follow my work and also those of uh, my colleagues. But you can also check out what we're doing at Tech Freedom, uh, techfreedom.org. And we have a number of uh, events uh, coming up, including a few more on essays in the book and uh, I hope a series of conferences on things like how government affects the startup and uh, venture capital marketplace and another one on the mobile, mobile marketplace and the fascinating competition we're seeing today between devices and operating systems and marketplaces and apps uh, that really uh, nobody would have predicted just a few years ago. Well, Baron, it's it's always a pleasure talking to you. And again, you know, people, please be sure to check out the the book. Um, is it, it the link is posted on the Internet Law Center blog, uh, ILC Cyber Report, um, WordPress.com. And um, thanks again for joining us, Baron. Now tonight um, is a big day. Um, if any of you are, are soccer fans. Um, a, a couple a couple weeks ago, the U.S. Um, blew a two nothing lead against Mexico in the Gold Cup finals, and one of the most atrocious <laughs> leads blown I've ever seen, including one of the ugliest goal scores I've ever seen in soccer. And so um, that resulted in the firing of their coach. And today, the U.S. is playing Mexico and Philadelphia with their brand new coach. So we wish them well. And um, hope and hope you'll join us next week on Cyberlaw and Business Report. We'll have Timothy Walton, and we'll be talking about the spam wars.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.